Hey now, and almost happy new year. We are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with your 2023 AEW World's End Instant Analysis. That's right, getting over is back once again, and we are here just minutes after AEW World's End went off the air to bring you instant analysis, reaction, results, and grades from not just AEW's final pay-per-view of 2023, but the final major wrestling show of the year. Vintage Chris Vanini will be along momentarily to tag team this instant analysis, but before we get to him, allow me to get to this. That is a reminder that this podcast is all about Defy. So don't forget to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also DM and tweet us questions and comments for the show. And you get to vote in pre- and post-show polls surrounding pay-per-views like AEW World's End, which factor into our analysis on the episode. Again, you can do all of that by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get exclusive audio, exclusive news, and much more. You can get it all again at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, this is the point of the show where the Silver King and Vintage, we would crack open a cold one special for you on this instant analysis type of podcast. Unfortunately, we are both worn out from the middle of college football bowl season for me, week 17 in the NFL, wrapping up on Sunday. So we're going to forego that today, but I promise the drinks will be back for the Royal Rumble and beyond. But at this point, Chris, let me welcome you into the show. It is indeed Sunday morning, at least for me, past midnight here on the East Coast. And we just went through a 13-match AEW World's End that I think this is going to be one of the more unique instant analysis episodes we have done in quite some time. Fair to say that you feel the same way. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a long week, both work and outside of work. I've just had a lot going on here. And this was a show kind of had mixed feelings on coming in. I actually, I wasn't on the ultimate preview. I'll give you my pre prediction on that. But uh, yeah, coming out of all that, it's uh, not so great. Not so great. Now, other fans, those perhaps being in WWE, may feel that this was a great night and it had nothing to do whatsoever with AEW because we're going to get into the entirety of AEW World's End on the show. But there was some major breaking news right in the early goings on of World's End that we briefly have to discuss, but I promise you we're not going to spend long on it and we will take our time discussing this news item this coming Tuesday on our next WWE episode, our first show of 2024, which of course will come out on Tuesday. But like I said, there was some major breaking WWE news on Saturday night. And that news, which comes with a tear in my eye, is that Kevin Dunn, who has been with the company for more than 30 years as Vince McMahon's number two and the executive vice president of production, has decided to leave WWE. 
He has millions of dollars in stock and there is no immediate replacement for him in his direct role. But obviously this is a huge headline with the 2023 year coming to an end. It's probably one of the top four or five wrestling related headlines of the year that are not morbid, of course. Obviously it happens after we already taped the year in review episode, which is by the way, in our podcast archive, make sure you listen to that at some point as we cross over from 2023 to 2024. And like I said, given tonight is about AEW, though there's a couple other news items that we'll discuss throughout. We're going to save a much more detailed reaction about this for Tuesday's WWE show, but I will leave you with this. I am the game, JR. There is nobody that eats, sleeps, or breathes this business more than me. Paul Levesque won because it's been a battle with him, Stephanie McMahon for a long period of time, and Kevin Dunn. Vince McMahon's marginalized, Kevin Dunn is out, and Paul Levesque is the chief creative officer of WWE. It's an extremely interesting scenario, Chris. I don't know if you have anything to say on it right now, but like I said to everyone else, we will discuss this at much greater length on Tuesday. Yeah, my first came up, popped up in the middle. The news popped up in the middle of uh, World's End, and my thought was, "Oh, all right, they they really it really is fully turning everything over now." Uh, Vince, his people, they're pretty much on the way out now. Mm-hmm. That this is as much as Triple H's company on screen and behind the scenes as it uh, perhaps has ever been. Yeah, in Nikon. Yeah, Triple H and Nikon, no question about that. All right, that's the quick WWE ish. Of it all, let's get into AEW World's End instant analysis. There are technically 13 matches on this card. We're going to start with the main event, and we're going to work our way down the card based on what was pretty much the most important coming out of the evening. We're not tackling it in card order. We're doing it based on match-by-match importance. So let's kick it off where AEW World's End concluded. That was the AEW Championship MJF defending against Samoa Joe. MJF got a Long Island vignette entrance with a ton of people speaking positively about him, including one woman who went on like a mini rant about fucking him in the back of a car for five hours. Her words, not mine. Uh, It ended with everyone donning the Burberry scarf and saying he's our scumbag. It was pretty well done, but I would say potentially low rent, at least in terms of like production quality of the entire thing. Then he came out in a Ric Flair-esque King of Long Island robe. He sat on the top rope. He soaked in the adulation before pointing to the stage as Adam Cole entered, hint, hint, wearing all black, still in a boot. So in terms of the match, Joe started working an injured shoulder. MJF had braced and taped. I liked that he did sentons onto the arm. MJF ate a Death Valley driver and a variety of suplexes for a rope break. Then Joe did a muscle buster onto the ring apron, which was nasty as hell. That move has legitimately injured people regularly in the ring, and they did it on the apron. There was a false finish on a delayed cover after that. MJF bit Joe, then collapsed under his weight on his shoulders, but hit a heat seeker for a false finish that came across as if it was just a near fall, like there wasn't a huge reaction to it. MJF used his tape to help lock in Salt of the Earth, but Joe reversed it into the bad arm. MJF ran Joe into the referee for a knockout spot, but Max smiled, so it looked like it was maybe purposeful. He low-blowed Joe on the middle rope and hit what I guess we should call an MJF five in what I thought was the spot of the match for a delayed two count. MJF asked Cole for the dynamite diamond ring, but he took a while to find it, just like what was happening in that Jay White match, you'll remember. Joe got him in a headlock. He countered to a cover, MJF did, and then Joe countered back into the coquina clutch for a three count arm drop 
and a knockout victory with Samoa Joe becoming the new AEW champion in 19 minutes. The referee in this finish was watching the arm drop and literally waited like two seconds, staring at it blankly, like perplexed that MJF didn't raise it. And then he called Joe the winner. They rang the bell and the celebration went on. Cole climbed into the ring to give MJF a pep talk for basically giving everything he had. Fans chanted bullshit. All of a sudden, four devil's goons came out of the crowd. MJF stood in front of Cole to protect him. They both got restrained with one guy holding a chair, standing between them. They're both screaming. Cole's like, hit me instead of MJF. MJF's like, no, hit me. But as the chair was raised, the lights went out, only to reveal Cole seated in the chair, staring at MJF with the goons all standing behind Cole. They were Roderick Strong, The Kingdom, and Wardlow. MJF started crying, it seemed, because he was obviously betrayed by the one person who was his friend. Strong immediately hit a pump knee, Undisputed Era style, and Wardlow hit him with a powerbomb. One powerbomb, nothing more. Cole then held the devil mask, dropped it on Max's chest, and AEW World's End went off the air. So obviously, we need to tackle this in two parts, the match and the post-match. Let's start with the match. It was extremely well done as far as I was concerned. Like, what's frustrating is we got a second straight MJF main event where he's heavily selling an injury the entire time. And it wasn't even the same appendage that was injured a couple months ago. MJF selling, though, was strong throughout the entire match. He kept it up even in spots where he had to use the arm. So I credit him for doing a good job with the selling. The match story also made perfect sense. And we still saw levels of quality wrestling despite doing the injury angle. But the finish was immensely odd. And I suppose the idea was to enhance the shock of MJF losing. Even the referee who's there in the moment could not believe that arm dropped. Instead, it came across to me as a viewer like it was a mistake or that it was off script. When you have a title change without a crescendo to that title change, that's always problematic, particularly when it's a world championship. I'm absolutely, this is one of those matches I'm definitely going to have to watch again with a clear head, not having watched the 11 or 12 matches that preceded it and probably regrade. But right now I'm at 3.75 stars B plus. It was quite well done, but just not excellent because of the way they did the finish. Though I will say, Chris, I did love that a match ended on a three arm drop technique. You and I both love that and matches almost never end that way. All of that said, I'm also thrilled for Samoa Joe. The guy has grinded his ass off. He's dealt with serious injury concerns. He had that 18-month span in WWE. That was absolutely hell. He got fired, brought back, fired again. Now he's a top guy in AEW. He's a great heel and a great heel champion. My problem with Joe taking the title off MJF is that it was a missed opportunity for someone else, like Swerve Strickland, for example, to get over by tackling and taking down MJF. I have to assume Joe was used in place of Cole, who was probably supposed to win in this spot with a different version of the devil story unfolding. So I at least understand why I did it. But let me stop talking. Let me get you in. Give me your thoughts on the match. So it, um, did, did you read MJF's uh, Players Tribune article I did. on Friday? I found it perplexing. When I read, it, 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 was, it, was, it was interesting. But when I read it, I came out of it thinking MJF is losing this, mm-hmm. this title 
to Samoa Joe. Same. It sounds like he really is seriously banged up in a lot of different ways, and he's going to need a break, or at least not wrestling for a bit. And so I came into this thinking Joe was going to win. And you mentioned the three-arm spot. They did it twice in this show, by the way. Two, another match did a, th- did a three-arm drop and at least twice. And yeah, I talk about it all the time. WWE doesn't do it or sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. You create the drama of one, two, three. But I don't know if the ref just didn't know that was the finish or forgot or what. I was kind of curious on that. It was kind of a deflating moment because MJ has been the champion all year. You want it to be mm-hmm. a stunning type of finish. And I don't think anybody expected it to be essentially a clean finish. No, we were waiting. You know, well, you're waiting for the devil. You, I mean, but like you're waiting for the devil people to come in and yeah, cost the match. I wouldn't call it like, a clean oh. finish, but it was not a dirty finish. It's in the middle, right? Yeah, it's in the middle, right? I like I, my prediction was coming in. Uh, Samojo wins with the help of the devil people, and Adam mm-hmm. pulls the devil, and they team up, and boom, there you go. So it was like not quite there, but I, I don't think anybody expected the match to just end like that, and so it made for a little kind of a weird whole deal. And then the devil stuff comes out and the devil stuff happens. And I will say of all the options of all the talk of the different things that could be, they went if it, if maybe it was always the plan, but of all the options, this was the safest option Mm -hmm. and it was the right option. It would have been so easy to like overbook this or make it Britt Baker or do something just to create a reaction. And it just, and it just fizzle after like a week. It had to be Adam Cole. It had it had it had to be Adam Cole and, and the people that he's with there in the kingdom, because that's that's the story they've been telling. Now you could say there's some inconsistency in terms of when the devil started and wh- whatever, but it had to be Adam Cole. So I, I I saw it. I was like, all right, good. They're not making this weird. They're, you can you can you can say the devil thing was dumb, fine, but we're moving on from the devil now. We're moving into Adam Cole and the kingdom. They're not going to be dressed up as devils anymore. It's mm-hmm. over. So I think that it creates a a nice kind of just like end point for that. So match was really good. I think these these two guys have really, really good chemistry. Uh, the story getting here was weird. The way Dynamite ended was weird. Uh, I wasn't around to talk about that. Uh, it, it got to it got to the place it needed to get to in the end. It just had a lot of bumps along the way. Yeah, I think ultimately that's fair. I, I don't have any major problem with the devil part of the entire deal. That doesn't change the fact that the storyline has been terrible, but the ultimate reveal was fine. I think my biggest issue was that they had Cole come out before the bell wearing all black, (laughs) which just completely gave it away to me. I mean, even though we already knew it was him, it would have been something else if the referee's down and Joe's taking advantage of him or the devil, the goons start attacking and Cole comes down in the crutches and then gets in the ring. Like there's so many different ways they could have done it than just not have him there the entire time. You know, they had him ringside for this huge reveal. So it's either going to be him or someone extremely close to him. But the best thing I can say about it is I think what you were saying, it was fine. It was not the worst case scenario which was Jungle Boy or heaven forbid Tony Khan. But it also <laughs> <saw that> one. <laughs> it, it also was not the best case scenario, which would have been something surprising or unexpected. It just was. It happened. It's who we expected. And it makes sense in storyline. 
Cole calls him Max. He's the one who got MJF to actually accept friendship and turn babyface. So it makes sense that he's the one to betray him. There's no one better to do it in that regard. Plus, you had, let me go through it though. Yeah, yeah, you had yeah. the Cole skits at Strong's house. That can all be explained as them concocting the scheme and then showing those to like make Max think something's wrong when it's actually not. Cole and Joe have a relationship from NXT, which is how they connected. It also made sense for the reveal not to cost MJF the title because he was cost the title by the setup on Dynamite, getting attacked and getting injured, and then Cole delaying in his attempt to find the ring in the middle of the match. That was him affecting the outcome in both occasions. That attack and the delay are what cost him ultimately. Strong and Kingdom have been trying to throw everyone off this for weeks, and Wardlow has been the one front and center calling Max out to keep him occupied and not necessarily connecting all the dots. The biggest compliment I can give is that it was totally sensible. That said, it was boring. Like my reaction to it was, oh, okay. When the reaction you want after a months long story with a reveal should be, holy shit. Like in other words, if you're listening and you're underwhelmed, that's fair. If you're saying it's bad, that's not fair because it was not bad, it just was. And I will say, Chris, that the event being named World's End was apropos because MJF's world ended. He lost the title and he lost his friend, which were the only two things that he had. Here, here's my question, though. Um, and I didn't pick this up at all. Joe, Joe's not involved in this group, right? It doesn't seem like Joe it. is not involved in the group. He made a deal with the devil that got him the upper hand on Dynamite at the end of the, you know, at the end of the show. And then yeah. because he got that and he took out Max and he hurt his shoulder even more, he had the upper hand in this match. So like, but do you think this is enough of a betrayal for it to be as impactful it was as it was supposed to be? Like, wouldn't it have been well, easier if Cole cost MJF the match? So let me read you what one of our listeners, Michael Reisfeld, uh, Reisfeld, sorry, at underscore Feld underscore world wrote in. I'm not going to read it verbatim because he sent in a long ass DM and we got a lot of show to do. But this is the point that he made. The reason this did not hit as well as, let's say, Sami Zayn turning on Roman Reigns, just as like one example, is that Cole has not been active and has not been on TV weekly to build the relationship part of the story with Max. Think about how many weeks in a row on SmackDown. We had Sami and Jimmy, and then Sami and Jay, then Sami and Roman interacting. They led up to this big moment. We saw little indications of patience being tested or motives being questioned. And all of that led up to the crescendo, the big moment in the middle of the ring where Sammy had enough and turned. And and then later, the same thing happened with Jay and Roman. Here, because Cole was injured and was out of action, there was no real emotion to it outside of the emotion they had months ago in the main event of All In when they hugged. And then in the backstage area, they were really upset. And, you know, but they were still friends and, and working it all out. And the devil mask kind of hung there as almost like a omen of what was to come. But they never continued that aspect of it after All In leading into this. Therefore, you only cared about it so much. If this happened, like let's just make believe at the end of All In or the next Wednesday on Dynamite, it would have been a huge moment. But instead, not only was it delayed, not only did they not continue building the emotion and the relationship, 
But beyond that, Cole is injured. So you right. don't, there's nothing that you can get out of this right away. I, I'm just, right. I'm just, I, I'm just thinking like, here, here's like it, a simple way, it's a, probably the way WWE would have booked it. But like, you do it like this where MJF's about to win. A cold does not come out pre-match. Mm-hmm. MJF's about to win. You pull the ref, a de- a, someone dressed in black, the devil pulls a referee out. MJF's like, what, what, what? Gets in the ring, pulls off the mask. Adam Cole, MJF's like, what? Why would you do that? And I don't know if it's a super kick, if he's hurt a weapon, something. He hits Max. Samoa Joe gets him a muscle buster. Ref comes back in one, two, three. You know, like then we would have like, been more excited. That. Yeah. We, yeah, as opposed to like, like MJF is at, at the end, like MJF's there, like, why Cole? Why kind of at the end of this? But like, he didn't do anything. He lost to Samoa Joe. Like, you know, like it's, it's, it's like completely separate from the title, the betrayal, which was in which case it wasn't much of a betrayal. You know, I just it felt a little well, again, it like it wasn't bad. I just felt like it was an opportunity to make it more impactful than it was. This probably goes back to one of those major issues with Tony Khan's booking, though, which is once he has an idea in mind, he'll either wait as long as necessary for that to play out or he won't adjust significantly enough to make whatever he changes it to good. So for example, I would not be surprised if this was supposed to all lead up to Cole taking the title from MJF at this show, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea was that Cole would be healthy this entire time and they'd probably have all these storyline elements leading all the way into it. Once he got hurt, Tony probably said, okay, let's go ahead and use Joe as the wrestler in Cole's place but we can do the rest of the story as we otherwise would. The reason that didn't work is because there's no emotional attachment with Joe, even though Cole was the one who told MJF to trust Joe and did all that. So he, he orchestrated the entire thing. Don't get it twisted. But there was no emotional attachment that came with the title change. And therefore, because that was divorced yeah. from the rest of the storyline, yeah. it just didn't hit as well as it could have. And now, Chris, here's the other problem. So like MJF is clearly going to be out for a number of months, most likely, okay? He's injured, he's gonna get fixed up. My assumption was kind of that he was gonna retain the title and then maybe like have to relinquish it after he got the shit kicked out of him after or or something like that. But now, eventually he's gonna come back. So AEW has two choices. They either hold him out all the way until Cole is cleared to wrestle. And like in Cole's first match back or whatever the case, that's when MJF returns and it's this big moment and they start a blood feud. But yeah. Cole is going to be out like another half of a year at this point. So either do, MJF. Do we know, do, do we know that? I, I don't I don't follow the report, so I don't know. what the His ankle is. shattered. I mean, it's it's you know, that's like a nine month injury. He's been out for three. Right. So yeah. I believe well, May, June well, is, is what I'm thinking. Well, yeah. But let's just yeah. let's just let's just make believe. Let's make believe that's the case. OK, so yeah. either you're keeping MJF, your one of your top stars off TV for, let's say, four to six months just so that it can work when Cole comes back, or you bring MJF back first and he's feuding with Wardlow, Roderick Strong, and Kingdom. Right. And like, who gets his back in that case? No one. Yeah. And, I, like, and on top of that, one more thing, Chris, I'm sorry. He yeah, shouldn't no, even be a face anymore because he turned face because of friendship and all this stuff. He got stabbed in the back. So in kayfabe and ca- character logic, he should be going full heel or D- full DTA, Stone Cold Steve Austin type of character where he doesn't trust anyone, he doesn't want any friends, he doesn't accept any friendship, and he's out for blood and that's it. That's all they can really do with MJF at this point. Yeah. So I'm just real curious to see what exactly they do when he, and when they bring him back. 
I mean, if Cole's out half the year, you're going to have to bring back MJF before that. But we don't know what MJF's going to have to do. Is he going to have to have surgery? You know, like, like I, as far as I know, we don't know. We just know he's really beat up in a lot of different ways. So it's a tough, it's a tough spot for AEW. It's also why, again, why I figured a title change was coming. And yeah, I mean, that moment, though, like if they build up Adam Cole's return and it, say it's four or five months from now mm -hmm. and immediately you get MJF's return. Kind of like that Undertaker Triple H yeah, thing. Yeah, you do that. Day. Yeah, that's what they should do. That that's good. That's gonna be like the hottest thing going in wrestling. Like if you're able to get that, they it, it's just it's if AEW can it's sustain gonna, itself until then. I mean, right? You if know, you're gonna have to do possibly three, four, five, six months. And also, without, Chris, hold on. Let, let, let's also remember Cole should not be returning to he. He's the devil. He now needs to be on TV. Or, I mean, yes. that, that at least should be the case. So it's not even going to be a situation where it's one return than the other, like Undertaker and Triple H. It's going to be a case of, like, Cole just happening to be in his first match and being an active competitor again, and then MJF returns. So, look, there's a lot of unknowns, and we've already spent a significant amount of time on this. But, again, I, I think the, the most fair way to an, analyze this is to say the match was good. To, to use basic terms, the match was good. The devil reveal was fine. And it's better than it being bad. Yes. Yes. Right. They didn't blow it by they didn't blow it by any means. It it, no. it, it it was it was fine. And that's 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 fine. That's the best possible way to just kind of wrap it all up. So let's move off the devil. Let's move off MJF into the Continental Crown Championship, which I did not realize was the name. Eddie Kingston against John Moxley, the winners of the two brackets, going for a created out of thin air triple crown title uh, featuring the new Continental Championship, uh, the NJPW Strong title and the ROH title. So Brian Danielson was on commentary. Eddie took a header into the barricade and was clearly hurt. Maybe he got a stinger, but he continued. He also hurt his forearm early in the match against Mox's forearm. It went strong style after that with Kingston hitting like two dozen chops before Mox hit an RKO. Eddie came back with a spinning back fist. Mox hit a lariat all in succession without selling. Uh, Kingston came back with a Northern Lights bomb and Mox's bulldog choke. Mox got caught with a back fist and another bomb after taunting the crowd. But he came back with a more strong style blow. And then they started exchanging slaps, like a ton of them. At the end of that exchange, Mox just wound all the way back and slapped Kingston across the face, only for Eddie to like spin his body around immediately and hit him with a huge back fist for the one, two, three. He held up the new title, which as mentioned, is the Continental Crown Championship after the bell, and Mox gave him a huge hug in the middle of the ring, clearly proud of him. This was one of my favorite finishes to a match all year. It was just perfect for Kingston and their feud. The slap, and then the back fist, and then the one, two, three immediately, boom, boom, boom. Like, it was just great. It was sudden, and it was exciting. He also got an awesome response from the Long Island crowd, even though He's more of, I think, a Bronx guy. And this yeah. just totally delivered for me. Sudden finishes are so rarely done. And it, when they are, it's always a roll-up or something stupid. But right. this was done so freaking well. It worked. And no one is even going to remember that Mox lost the match. It doesn't matter one bit. On top of that, Danielson was superb on commentary, as he usually is. And Mox didn't bleed. Hooray. Yeah, I wrote that down. <laughs> 4.25 stars in an A. I love this. This uh, coming out of Dynamite, this was easily the thing I was most looking Me forward too. to on this show. Yeah. Like, like, I don't. I'm not always on the AW 
uh, episodes of this podcast. But when I when I am, what do I always say? Eddie Kingston should be on every single episode of television you have. He's the man. Like he he has been over doing Ring of Honor stuff. Like, dude, get him on TV. He's your most captivating character you've got. You know, every time he opens his mouth, I'm interested. I'm connected. That is what makes Eddie Kingston so special. So mm-hmm. I was fired up coming into this. And a great vignette before the match told the story. Really good stuff. Really good job by the AW video team on that. Danielson, he did bring really, really good insight. Mm-hmm. Like he was hyping up at the beginning. He's hyping up Eddie Kingston as a really good striker. He's like, he's like, he's better than me, you know, at striking and stuff like this. And you're thinking like, if he's like, oh, like maybe I need to take Eddie Kingston more seriously as a wrestler than I do. Like that kind of stuff is so important with commentary. It, it, it just, it tells you it brings legitimacy and more credibility to the people you're watching. That is the job of commentary. But I also couldn't help but think how good Danielson would have been in like the classic heel commentator role at this spot. Calling Eddie a bum, saying he represents the the pores or he's never going to accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. Mox is going to. And then and then like he get he gets his comeuppance on commentary by winning, you know, like the, the way Paul Heyman used to do it or, or Lawler sometimes and, and, and Ventura and all the Bobby, mm-hmm. the brain, Heenan, like the best at it. Like we don't really have those types of commentators in WWE or AEW. And I thought Danielson would have been the perfect guy to do it when he came out. That's what I expected. But he was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to play it even here. And he did. He did. He did a great job. I just, I kept thinking about that, how, how fun that would have, uh, would have been as for the match. Mm-hmm. When Eddie Kingston took that suicide dive outside and hit his head, my God, I was very concerned. I thought the match was over. I honestly did. Yeah, because there were, there were several dangerous botches yeah. in this show, and this was one of them. And it's not just that Eddie hit his head. It's that after he did, he, like, nestles over to Mox to say something. Mm-hmm. And, so I'm like, oh, and the referee, too. And then, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, like, but they made it through the match. And so I don't know if the whole thing was a work or if he just toughed it out. But the fact that I don't know is what I love about pro wrestling. You know, I I, I love getting worked on an injury because right after that, they go DDT, they go suplex, they, they go out. Box goes after his head right out of that. And you're just like, oh, I don't know if this if this should be happening. But I mean, Eddie worked the rest of the match and everything seemed fine. So hopefully he's good because uh, it, it added to the story for sure. If, if it was a total work, incredible job of pro wrestling. Yeah. If that's what happened. Yeah, well, between that and the I, forearm spot too, both of them looked like real serious. So it was yeah. either both a work, one was a work, um, or neither, and he just got in through it. Yeah, and I, I'll also say the I always I hate the spot, and both rest, both WWE and AEW do this. The ones where we just openly chop each other and just like see who can be tougher taking a chop. Mm-hmm. I freaking hate that, man. I hate it <laughs> all the time. You're in the middle of a fight. I know, yeah. You know, you're trying to win a championship. I don't need you guys to tough it out. That's like, that's not, we know these guys are tough as shit. Like, we already know that. This sometimes happens in Guther matches and stuff like that. I just I don't like when people do those. Fights. You can do chops as offense. It's totally fine. And I'm fine with the punch and the guy punches back when they're when you're both kind of tired. But just like the, we're going to stop wrestling here. You just chop me and see if you can hurt me. I hate it. It takes me out of the match every single time. There's a lot of uh, New Japan matches you would really hate. Yeah, I, in I, a significant probably. way. Um, and then this was the other match that did the three arm drop. But Eddie Kingston got the arm up on mm-hmm. three and it got a reaction from the crowd. And I, I wrote it down in my notes. I was like, that's exactly why you do it. 
that creates the, the, the momentum coming back to Eddie Kingston's side. So uh, this was fantastic. I loved all of it. Happy for Eddie Kingston. Uh, great match. I'd probably give I'd probably give 4.5 just kind of because kind of the sentimentality of all of it. The only thing that was um, weird was that this was for three championships. Well, and that's the that other topic. Yeah, that's the other topic. So like in terms of the Continental Crown, the belt itself looked fine. What's odd, and it was so freaking frustrating. They gave it away by showing a graphic version of it before unveiling the title itself. Like, that's so boneheaded. You can't do that. Whether the title ultimately matters to anyone but Eddie is going to fully depend on how it's booked. It's one thing to book an entire tournament for this type of result, for a title win, because you have a guy in Eddie who's always wanted to be the All Japan Triple Crown champion. And and so you make your own and you give it to him. That's fine. Now, this is the main title. I I, I mean, I think, right, based on Capri for New Japan Strong and Ring of Honor, and it's a secondary title in AEW, which, by the way, like, interesting the way New Japan was okay with that being the case, although they have their own primary titles and Strong itself is a secondary promotion for them. But it's all going to depend, Chris, on what they do after the fact here. That's the way I see it. I'm interested. I have an open mind, especially with Eddie as champion because I like him so much. But I mean, we do need to, you know, be real here. Look, there's an AEW title and now there's three mid-card men's singles titles. Look, get rid of, get the Ring of Honor titles off my AEW television. Get the New Japan titles off my AEW television. I want to focus on AEW. But Chris, when everybody has that, a though. when everybody has a belt, they're all used as crutches and then they don't mean anything. I agree right? with that. Eddie hold Eddie holding th- Eddie holding three belts for winning this AEW tournament from three different promotions is a, is a mouthful to try to explain to somebody <laughs> what the heck is going on. Forget that, though. I, I, I want to get to the, the crux of the issue. Three mid-card men's singles titles for five hours of television. Plus the AEW championship, so, plus the tag team titles, plus the trios titles, six-man titles. Plus all the Ring of Honor stuff that's, that's Well, so the ROH main title is gone now, right? But... The TV title's coming back, and they have the pure title, which was just defended on Rampage this past Friday. Right. So yes, plus those, yes. But even if you forget plus FD, those, plus though, FTW, FTW title. Plus too. the FTW title. But even if you forget those, like even if you just say, okay, it has to have AEW in the name for us to consider it for this conversation, they have three men's singles mid-card titles. So like, that's what I was trying to figure out. I, I, I haven't followed all that closely. Is, is this crown title that Eddie Kingston has, just the AEW one, is this going to just be defended like a mid-card title, or is it only going to be like Continental Classic winner? No, no, like it's, a, it's supposed like to be, ring. I'm pretty freaking sure it's supposed to be defended, but whoever holds it gets automatic entry into the Continental Classic each year. Okay. Is, 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 are we calling it the Triple Crown title? It is a, I mean, again, I'm not calling it the Triple Crown title. Right, I'm asking it's made like, up. Is, is, they is, are. is whoever has this always going to have that Ring of Honor title? I believe that's the idea. Yeah, I believe that no matter what like the lineage now goes, that that person will be a Triple Crown champion. Yeah. That's incredibly stupid. Well, that's what they're doing. So It's weird. Yeah. Just focus Just focus on what AEW's got a good thing, man. Just like focus on that AEW and don't throw in all this other stuff. It just dilutes your brand. Let's talk about the other mid-card title that was defended on the show. There was a battle royal for the TNT title number one contendership on Zero Hour. So I must have missed something because a ton of tables and chairs 
were pulled out from underneath the ring, like at the bell or before the match began. But best I could tell, they never came into play. Like, I, I don't think anything happened with them. I, I don't know what that was about. Action Andretti crushed a bottle of water late in the match with Lance Archer just watching him do it. Tremperetta eliminated his friend Danhausen, given there was a TNT title opportunity on the line. So I guess that's going to lead to something. That left him and Killswitch as the final two. The dinosaur ultimately won with a tussle on the apron. So Killswitch made his return from a concerto into this match with no lead up. I, I thought this was dreadful as a battle royal. Nothing exciting whatsoever. And this is one of the lowest grades. I'm not saying that this was like the worst match ever, but I'm just giving honest grades. This is one of the lowest grades I've given any pay-per-view match all year. It might be the lowest, 1.5 stars in a D. I, I kind of just, I didn't really have any thoughts on it because there's just a bunch of stuff going on. I, I did think um, AW had gotten better with these battle royals. Like they, they had been terrible, you know, for a while. Um, I didn't catch this whole one live. I think I was in the middle of some other stuff because it was a pre-show. But yeah, it seemed like a mess. And the win you knew kind of you figured was going to set up. Right. Something with Christian. Once you saw who the winner was. Right. Yeah. So it was on the pre-show for a reason. It was. So let's move to the TNT Championship match. Christian Cage against Adam Copeland, no disqualification. So Copeland attacked up the ramp before the bell and drank someone's soda. Then he hit himself in the head with it like Sandman to get color. Fans chanted, we want tables and then TLC. Copeland jumped off a barricade in the crowd for a splash. Fans chanted, you still got it like he hasn't been wrestling for the last three years. Then just put on a banger with Sheamus like two months ago. They used kendo sticks for a bit. Copeland did a catapult with a ladder. Christian then did a sunset flip powerbomb off the ladder in what was the spot of the match. Next were tables because this basically became a TLC match without calling it that. Fans chanted, we want fire. And and I heard this chant and I'm like, why are, why are they chanting, we want fire? I, I've never heard that. It's I mean, I've heard it in, a, in ECW, but like not AEW or WWE. Copeland hits an impaler DDT into a chair. Nick Wayne stops a concerto. He then, Copeland did, leapfrogged a spear attempt into a table, throwing a chair at Cage's head twice, and then spearing him through the table, which was great. Shayna Wayne stopped the referee's count. Nick then hit him in the head with the TNT title and hit Wayne's world at ringside, which was a great move and pretty dangerous because it was right next to a table. Christian bumped backwards into Copeland and then hit kill switch for a false finish in the middle of the ring after all of that already happened to him. And then the fans actually got fire. The table gets lit up with lighter fluid at ringside. Copeland countered Cage into a spear, but the fire went out. So they had to relight the table. Once it got relit, Copeland was worried it was going to get extinguished again, I guess by the air. So he just quickly pulls Wayne off the apron into a powerbomb, except he rushed the powerbomb and the table was too close to the ring. So Wayne completely misses the table almost breaks his neck in a gnarly spot. So they don't get the fire spot and the kid almost dies. Christian tries to use the title. Copeland low blows him and then hits kill switch his own move to win the TNT title. So Adam Copeland is the new champion. As he starts celebrating, kill switch, the wrestler attacks him from behind, choke slams him into the TNT title, then choke slams him into a chair. And then he takes out the, the TNT title contract that he got from the Battle Royal, he goes to hand it to the referee. Apparently, 
it's money in the bank rules out of nowhere. I've never heard of this before. If they mentioned it in the battle royal, then I will admit that I was wrong and they mentioned it. But I have no recollection of that being the rules with a title opportunity. You don't just because you get a title opportunity doesn't mean you get to use it whenever you want. Christian stops him, demands it for himself. Killswitch protests, and then Christian whispers in his ear. And then he just gives it to Christian. He signs it. The match starts. He spears Copeland, regains the title in 10 seconds. Chris, I don't think I have the words for this. Like, okay, first, these guys worked their asses off in a way too long match that was nevertheless the best action that we had on the card through yep. the first three hours of the show. Until we got to this triple main event, this was the best thing that we got to that point. However, even with that being the case, the immense amount of interference and the double botched finish, for me, it took significant shine off of this. And again, let's not forget, this thing went long. I have it clocked here at 25 minutes, which is the longest match of the night by eight full minutes. I guess the double botch was somewhat apropos, just giving the evening in totality. So I'm at four stars A minus for what we got bell to bell. But in terms of what we got after the bell, my Lord, first, like I just said, they treated this contract like money in the bank. When as far as I know, there was zero indication it had those rules. Why would someone, let's make believe there were these rules. Why would someone be able to earn a contract with that kind of power from a stipulation standpoint, based on a pre-show battle royal. If your answer to that is, well, money in the bank exists for WWE, they have it. That is a special match type that happens once a year and there's a huge build into it that you know this person has that advantage. That was not the case here. And then not only do they treat it that way, they make Luchasaurus's win irrelevant because he's able to just hand it over to someone else who wasn't even in the match to cash it in themselves. Had Luchasaurus cashed it in, maybe hit Christian over the head with the clipboard first, huge pop and really easy to digest. Instead, we're right back where we started in what I thought was a nonsensical piece of booking with a double title change really for no reason whatsoever. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Really, the only solace is that it fit Christian's gimmick and character perfectly. He's just an yep. utter piece of shit and he did something here that an utter piece of shit would do. And let me kind of wrap up with this, and I'll get you in here, okay? There's a lot of people online, AEW haters or whatever, who claim every time AEW does some booking that's not good, that it's Jump the Shark, or oh my God, it's 2000 WCW bad. They used to say this about WWE, you know, like pre-pandemic. That's always been bullshit. Massive exaggerations. AEW has booking problems. We discuss them with you on this podcast, but no one who actually watched WCW in 2000, which I did, would make those comparisons. But this booking, this was super close, man. This was bad TNA. That's the best way that I can describe it. Zero point zero. Block at zero. Wait, you're giving it a zero? So it was a, what, a 4.0 for the in-ring and then a 0.0 for the rest of it? For the post-match, yeah. Yeah. 
I, the match was, I had no problems with the match. Match. I, was, I mean, I, outside I of the botch, I, I a, outside of the botch, I, I, you know, I, that was it. I had a lot of fun with this, man. Okay, um, go for it. Both, both parts of it. I mean, the match, you, you laid it out. Really fun. I did say, coming into this, I was exhausted because nothing of interesting, really nothing interesting had happened on the show. It was dragging. And this match comes up and I text my brother. I was like, this is, well, and this is going to go at least 20 minutes. You know, <laughs> like we just, we knew they were. But man, they freaking left it all out there, man. A lot of, a lot of really good spots. A lot of just exciting, fun stuff. And in this, it really picked up the crowd because it, it had been a pretty yeah. dead show. Th th these guys, these guys ruffled their ass off. Really fun stuff. I did think before the match, there's not really a story to this. Like, it's just that. Edge is like, yeah, I wanted to team with Christian and come here, but he's being an asshole. Like, I feel like the story they should tell here is Christian has had to, for Christian to basically have any single success, he has had to leave Edge, whether that's Edge retiring, mm -hmm. whether that's TNA, whether that's here. And so Christian should be like the whole thing should be I'm trying to get away from you because you have always kept me in your shadow and I hate you and all this kind of stuff. They haven't leaned into that as much as I think they could because it's a natural story. These we've seen these guys together in and out of kayfabe so much that it's hard to believe correct a kayfabe story between them. So lean into that part of it, which is totally true. And, and not that it was malicious but it is true christian has only stood out when he's been away from edge like in a different company and so there's that i also thought uh when edge did his entrance i didn't realize uh, tony Shamel works for aw he's a producer Schimmel? he should do the edge entrance yeah tony Shamel. sorry he definitely should because he's whatever justin roberts did was horrible yeah, it was weird. I thought he said I thought he said superstar twice. I don't know. Like, no, no, he I said it. Rewind. He said it four times. He said the rated R super, 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 uh, superstar. I was like, are yeah. you fucking kidding me? I wasn't <laughs> sure if he did that on purpose. Or he not. did. I was like, what the heck is. Yeah. So <laughs> like Tony Chimel, Tony Chimel is the edge guy. Like he does the edge. Yeah, he's not French. Ring announcer. I just I, I have I wrote wrote it down. I forgot to say it in my how to say it in my head. But he he have him do the edge entrance. I think that'd be cool. He does a great anyway. The the fire spot man. Like I was like embarrassed for everybody when they're like when they had to do it again, and it was taking forever. And Edge is like, I'm really gonna make sure I put a lot of lighting fluid on this so this thing lights up. Uh, uh and, and then you know they had to. I actually liked it because first off they're chanting we want fire or whatever exactly that was right off the bat because we're all thinking edge spearing Mick Foley at WrestleMania into the fire. Mm -hmm. It's a famous spot. Mm -hmm. And I hate, hate how often AEW just redoes a famous spot. Oh yeah. With all these the people instead of doing their own thing, like MJF and Adam Cole hugging at the end of all in doing the British Bulldog, Bret Hart thing. Do your own things, man. Stop like like you can honor history, but don't just redo history. So I was terrified here that they were going to have Edge spear Christian through a table into the fire to do the same thing. And I kept thinking, one, that's it's not creative. Two, both these guys have a lot of skin showing. How is that going to work? Mm -hmm. And so then when the Nick Wayne thing happens and and he starts to power bomb him, I'm like, oh man, I actually like the spot because Edge is going to 
hard power bomb him into the fire table. He's got clothes on. Like, it's going to be great. Like, as he starts to do it, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. And then he throws him too far. And then you're like, oh, God, now I'm embarrassed again because Nick Wayne's got to roll around pretending he's on fire, even though he's not on fire. And it's just like it, it was an unfortunate uh, just timing of that. I did like that Taz explained why the fire went out. He was like, look, that thing only it only lasts briefly. You yeah. only got like yeah. a couple of seconds to do that. I like that. Good, good. Taz good is the best at like saving things that go wrong and, and giving them yes. the William Regal like kayfabe explanation of it. He he is so freaking good in that role. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And then the last part, you know, so yes, it's weird that Killswitch got this. I keep wanting to call him Luchasaurus, but call Luchasaurus, Luchasaurus gets, his, gets his contract and it immediately gives it to Christian after talking. And I don't remember who it was on commentary. It might have been Excalibur. says, what is this Rasputin type of role that Christian has mm-hmm. over uh, Killswitch? And I still have, we have had this question for like, Two years now, almost it feels like I feel like we need to figure out exactly what that is. And maybe now we will. But I came into this year, thinking yeah. I came into this thinking that Christian should win because it didn't feel like the moment yet. Right. We need we need we need Edge to really kind of get built up into it. So it took a weird way of getting there. It took a very Christian way of getting there, like you said. And so, like, yeah, it was a little a little too gimmicky at the end, but I had fun. I liked it. That's fine. And I don't mind being out on a limb with that opinion. And and maybe I would have been less harsh on this if this was part of a loaded show and this was just a unique piece of booking in the middle of the show. But nothing preceding this was of significant value. The opening match was fo- solid and we're going to talk about that momentarily. But nothing like especially like the five matches that directly preceded this were just so I mean, they were bad. I mean, most of them were bad. And then you get this, you have Copeland winning for no reason. And then you have the change. Really, the thing that pissed me off wasn't so much Christian convincing Luchasaurus to give him the contract. It was the fact that it was a money in the bank contract, not established, where they just said, okay, that's going to be the rule. And even if they did establish it, it doesn't make sense that someone would have that kind of power winning a pre-show battle royal which included no one of significance. Luchasaurus was maybe Lance Archer, you could say, was like the biggest star in the entire thing. So that's why I had a problem with it. It wasn't Christian leaving with the title, which was the right decision. It wasn't a problem with the match or doing it, but it was those two elements. It was not establishing what the contract was. And even if they did, which I admit, there's a chance I missed it. I don't think I did. But even if they did, the fact that that contract had that kind of power, those two things do not play for me when it's a TNT title number one contendership out of a battle royal on a pre-show. I'm sorry. Yeah. N- yeah. Not until it was like in the process, I did. I totally realize what was going on because uh, you're right. It wasn't totally made clear. Last thing that I did like about this. Yeah. I love that they both won using the other person's finisher. Yeah. That was, you cool. know, you, you never get a pin out of that. Very rare. And they did. And it was surprising. I like that. And it works because they've known each other for so long. You would think that they would know how to do the other's move. Yes. You know, as best possible. So it it definitely fit in that regard. I I totally agree. I liked it. We have a lot more to talk about. Let's get to all of it. Women's Championship, Tony Storm against Rio. Uh, There were random times where the camera went black and white for gimmick, but little consistency to that. 
The crowd was fully behind Storm as the heel. Tony at one point sat on Luther's shoulders and did a running drag of Rio off the apron. He eventually got ejected in what was probably the best decision of Rick Knox's career. Rio half body slammed Tony. She couldn't lift her. And she got an extended run of offense after that. Storm's hip attack was dodged. And then she immediately hit Storm Zero, basically didn't sell the effect of it. That led to a false finish. Tony then ragdolled Rio off the ropes and hit Storm One, which is like an around the back DDT, to retain the title. Mariah May came out and showered Tony with rose petals during her celebration. And that was it. So it's always cool to see Storm One. Like Tony hasn't used it, I don't think, since she was in NXT. But commentary didn't even sell that it was a big deal. Rio, I mean, I want to say 100% got concussed when she got ripped off the ropes by Tony, which was extremely dangerous the way she did it. And apparently, according to two listeners who were in attendance, she needed major help going to the back after. So I know the finish was back to back, that move and then storm one, but the referee didn't even attempt to potentially stop it. The work was fine across the board. It never got hot. Worse is that Storm has not figured out how to translate her character into an interesting in-ring wrestler. It's the exact same problem that Bray Wyatt had for so long, especially with the Fiend gimmick and especially when he most recently returned. So the match, I'm at 2.75 stars and a C plus. I liked what they did early. That even may be a little bit generous. So first off, I don't think you mentioned this, but Tony Storm wearing K-tape on her shoulder, like just completely takes you out of the starlet. Totally. Yes. The same way I think you said on the preview pod, the way she has a tattoo, huge tattoo on her leg. Yeah. Yeah. Like to me, that's not as bad. This was way worse. Like you can't dress up like a like a 1920s actress and then put something like 2020s like on your thing. Like she should have had anything, it, she should have had the tape and then a big white bandage over it. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it should have been a giant band aid or something like that. Like I like really it just it was like oh. By the way, also like half the people on the show are wrestling with K tape, so I don't know what the mm. deal is, but I don't I don't like it. Um, it just looks weird. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, like, they gotta be. It helps them, so you can't. <laughs> it does, but I'm just like I always. I've said this before, but like, I want They're someone to bring heroes. back like the, like the DDP, you know, rib yeah, tape that he wore for twenty years. Like, yeah, yeah, just like that type of thing. The K tape is just like either you shouldn't be wrestling or you should. I don't know. Um, I did. I also like that uh, when as she's defending the title and the graphic comes up that the title is in black and white. Great little touch of that. Um, Coming into this, like Rio, I just, Rio does nothing for me. And I say that hoping she's okay with what happened at the end of the match, but coming in, it's like, I've never cared about Rio. She won the first title. There's no connection. She's barely been on television. It's just like, she's back for a title shot. She loses. She's probably goes away and does whatever it's just i've never seen her as believable at all in this women's division the match was i thought the match was solid though i actually thought rio did a good job in this match mm-hmm. she i was more interested in her because i thought she was doing a pretty good job um, but tony storm was gonna win wasn't much else to that uh and hope that rio is okay yeah she's a capable wrestler and she does well but yeah it's only so interesting and again as i stated on the ultimate preview and as i've stated on the podcast there was really no storyline for this match. And this was your big women's match on the show. And it was massively disappointing. Uh, next, we had Swerve Strickland against, wait, not Keith Lee, Dustin Rhodes. And you may say, Silver King, why is that the case? Well, Keith Lee announced on Twitter 
He's been dealing with an injury on and off for a couple of years now, uh, but he hurt himself again, I guess, at final battle, which, by the way, mm -hmm. you're having people wrestle your ROH show, even though there's a they have a big scheduled match on the AEW show coming up. Probably not the best idea, uh, but apparently he either got re-injured or aggravated it or something, and he wasn't sure he'd get medically cleared to compete, and he ultimately was not. So we got Swerve against his tag team partner, Dustin Rhodes, and that's a whole nother issue that I have. Uh, Swerve attacked before the bell and did a double stomp off the ring apron, breaking Dustin's ankle over a cinder block at ringside. So he sold it as being shattered. And Swerve stood in the ring, stoic, just looking at him. So Dustin is like getting carried off, stops halfway. I got to have this match <laughs> for whatever reason. He gets inside the ring, gets his ass beat early. Somehow the ankle is good enough that he can hit a Canadian destroyer and then start walking around normally. This is the opposite of the way MJF sold his shoulder injury in that match. Dustin flicks off Swerve, spits on him. So Swerve hits him with two house calls and a Swerve Stomp. And I should also mention, the Swerve Stomp really annoys me. It's it's the same, there's two moves that annoy me. The Swerve Stomp where the wrestler who, instead of just laying flat on their back or rolling away, sits halfway up so that he can hit them with it and it can be more impactful. It's the same thing when someone does that like hanging apron one. double stomp where like yeah, they're the holding onto the middle rope and then someone jumps off and hits them. It's like, why are you helping them? It doesn't make any sense. I digress. I could not. That was, uh, that was, uh, was it Andrade who had that as a finish? Andrade thing? does that. Dragon Lee does that. There's a lot of luchadors yeah. do it. It's very frustrating to me. I could not for the life of me, Chris, understand the purpose of the pre-match attack. Dustin is already a massive downgrade from Keith. So why take the little heat that existed out of the match before it even began? It's not like Dustin Rhodes needed to be protected. He's 54. I'd have much preferred this to be hotly contested for five minutes, only for Swerve to like take out the ankle just because he's a piece of shit and doesn't want to deal with this guy anymore. And then you go through the finish. Then Dustin wrestling as much as he did without selling the injury, that was stupid on top of it based on what they did. If you had done it the other way, he wouldn't have had to do that. This gets, I, I, I don't know, 2.25 stars in a C. I, I, I don't at all understand what they did pre-match. I don't know why they did it. You didn't have to protect Dustin. Swerve didn't need the help. It didn't make him look like a bigger piece of shit. I, I'm lost here. No, no, the, no, no, no. The, the pre-match was the good part. They did this. The pre-match was the good part. It should have ended at they, that. There shouldn't have been yeah, a match. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Because when they announced this and Keith Lee's out and Dustin's coming, I was like, why are we doing this match? Well, I guess people like Swerve, you want to get him on the show. Okay, whatever. Eh, whatever. And then they do this whole thing and he stomps on his ankle. I was like, oh, okay. Like, we got we got to see Swerve do his thing. He goes and sits on the turnbuckle. Exactly. And who's how Swerve says? I'm like, oh, Swerve's got the heat. All right, cool. That By the works. way, bro brushes off his shoulders. He doesn't deserve to be in the same ring as me. Yeah. I was here I'm for like, Keith cool. Lee. Right. I, I deserve okay, better right. competition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was like, all right, cool. That worked. Great job. Like they they totally they totally fixed it. And then they get into the match. A 10 minute match, by the way. And at the end of this, Swerves looks like a bum because he can't beat a one-legged 50-year-old Dustin Rhodes. Yep. Like, how did this become a competitive match? Why did this have to happen? They did it backwards, mm -hmm. if anything. Do the match, then do the beatdown, if that's how you're going to do it. 
don't do it this way. That you, you had a great moment in, in heat with Swerve there, and then you know, then he has to struggle to beat a one-legged dude, and you're just like, oh, okay. I cannot believe they booked it that way. It just for that reason, it didn't make sense. You're you're a thousand percent right. If they just ended it with the stomp on the cinder block and swerve in the ring, maybe cuts a quick promo. I'm like, you know what? Great decision. They had a 10 minute match for no reason. Great, whatsoever. great cover. Yeah. Even if it was a four, even if it was a four minute match, Dustin gets in the ring, can't do anything. can't get it to his feet. Swerve hits two of the house calls and the swerve stomp and the shit is over in three minutes. I'm giving it a higher grade than I did. Like anything mm-hmm. else, but what they did would have been better. It's just frustrating. Let's move to Miro against Andrade El Idolo. Hot and flexible. Entered basically a full Catwoman suit, except the top zipped down a little bit. It looked good, but she's got me saying, hey now. But seriously, I'm just glad she was able to be there, given the dangerous finger infection uh, that she had been yeah. dealing with. She had surgery. She was able to make it. I'm glad she's healthy. I'm glad she's okay. Uh, Miro attacked Andrade before the bell and got most of the offense. He got a light chant, despite being the heel. Hot and flexible hugged Andrade between moonsaults. Miro hit a thrust kick and locked in game over, but Andrade found the ropes. Miro yelled at Hot and Flexible for not cheering for him and ate a back elbow for a perfect 2.9 false finish. Andrade put him in the figure eight, but Miro reversed and Andrade reversed back. Hot and Flexible pulled Andrade's arms out, just like Asuka did to Charlotte Flair two weeks ago when she was doing the figure eight, turning on her client as Miro hit his thrust kick for a false finish and then game over for a double tap out victory. So Miro did not necessarily seem to be aware of the plan in kayfabe in the post-match. That's notable. Yeah. This was booked well, I thought. And hopefully they move it forward in storyline with the idea that Hot and Flexible did this whole charade to light a fire under her husband's ass and remind him who truly has his back. Not his God, but his wife. If they can use that as a capper and tie this whole thing together, then they're wrapping it in a bow and moving forward into something that's fresh and more entertaining for Miro. I hope they do it. I don't know if they will. There was something about this match though, Chris, where it never seemed to hit fourth or fifth gear. And while Andrade was not getting much offense and that made sense, one-sided matches are generally not the best. Still, the finish played for me. I saw people really shitting on this. I did not think it was that bad. I'm at 3.25 stars on a B. Yeah, it didn't get to that next gear, but I thought it was really solid. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was really strong. Um, it, 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 was, it was solid. I also think I also think Miro has one of the best super kicks. I don't know if I don't know if we'd even call it a super it's a kick. Thrust but kick. It's a thrust kick. The thrust kick. It's incredible. It's yeah. It's it, like it's sometimes this finisher, sometimes not. It it's it's just I put it up there with among the best kicks like that we've ever seen. He just gets it every time. It looks so impactful. It's incredible. Um, but I was confused by this ending because, like you said, if the storyline is hot and flexible, was trying to light a fire under her husband. Nobody's gonna give a fuck about that. Like uh, nobody, know. nobody cares about the the fake marriage drama between them because three days ago she posted happy birthday to him. You know, like, right, like, right. It, it's it. Sh- I wanted this to be. She turns on him, and Miro embraces her, and it turns out this was their plan all along, and they'd gotten back together at some point, and and this was it. Like 
like something the, the fact that she interfered and then he doesn't even care there'd be no like, motivation oh, for right. that though like he wasn't in the continental classic they were doing separate things he had forsaken her like that was so, so no, like, like i i think i think have, i think you, they've you, had to make you, a switch follow and, up and explain you follow up on dynamite and explain that they had a plan or something but that's, like that, but that's like, why i'm saying oh well, let me clarify but that's what i'm saying i think yeah. what i'm giving i think the, the the booking that i'm giving here wraps this all up for them where they say okay this is how we move past this storyline that A, didn't work, and B, for another reason we're going to discuss in a moment, had to change. But p- yeah. p- putting them together and and having it be that, like, because don't forget, he spent all these years saying, like, my God's the most important thing. And, and look, the, his yeah. gimmick and his storyline have sucked, as far as I'm concerned. The Redeemer, the whole deal, doesn't work for me. But what he did do was forsake his wife, and he prayed to the God instead, and you know, then he forsake the forsook the God. I don't even know if you can pass tense it. Um, and then and now she came comes back and she wants to make her own money and do her own thing. So if she was doing that just to kind of get under her husband's skin and turn him into the powerhouse that he hasn't been in his career, I think that plays. I'm not saying it's great, but I think it plays and it allows them to move forward. That's that's the point of doing it that way. I, I, I just, I would have had an embrace there. Like just, just to make it impactful. It was just a confusing end. Like he barely even acknowledged it. He did not. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like it was like, all right, whatever. Like it wasn't even like no questioning, no confusion, no, oh, I'm glad you just nothing. And it was just like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like it, it, like. I don't know. I just thought that his his reality. You could do what you said. It, it could be that maybe he didn't know she was going to do it, and he did, and he's thrilled that she did, and oh, that and then and then we and then we embrace or something like that, or he like we need like she interferes and he has like a look on his face, mm-hmm. you know, like oh man, what just happened? Like instead we just we got none of that, and I just again you got to make these things impactful when you do them. It's got to be impactful yeah. when MJF loses the title. It's got to be impactful when CJ Perry uh, hot and flexible turns on Andrade. And instead, these things are just they're just kind of happening. And it it just it misses the mark. No, that's fair. And you don't have to use my gimmick. You can call her CJ Perry. It's just (laughs) it's just what I do. What what is I I don't watch AW weekly enough. What is her? Is her? Is she go by CJ Perry? She goes by CJ Perry. But okay, so. The Titan Trance is hot and flexible, so I wasn't sure if that was her name. Yeah, so so that's the thing. So the reason why I do it as a gimmick for anyone who wonders, maybe you missed the initial episode, is so, you know, before she was actually in AEW, he would always say my hot and flexible wife, and he just said that over and over again. So when she ultimately debuted, instead of it saying CJ Perry on the big screen, it just said yeah. hot and flexible. <laughs> and yeah. I, I thought that was hysterical. So... I mean, that's I think it's funny to call her that. So that, that's the whole genesis of the entire thing. So she's hot and flexible. If they change it and they put CJ Perry on the Titantron or the big screen, I call, it's Titantron's WWE. Uh, if they put her on the big screen and CJ Perry, I will start calling her CJ Perry. But for now, she's hot and flexible. I don't think that's a bad thing to be called either. So I think it's pretty positive. I All things considered. It, yeah. yeah, it's fine. So there is a news item here that we need to discuss. If you are a WWE viewer, it might potentially be a little bit of a spoiler. So you can go ahead and skip ahead, like let's call it 60, 90 seconds here on the podcast. So you can do that right now. But early this afternoon, early Saturday afternoon, uh, we heard a real interesting news item here at Getting Over. We weren't going to tweet it out because it would have impacted the pay-per-view, World's End, and WWE 
uh, forthcoming. So either Royal Rumble, potentially Monday at day one. And that is Andrade is leaving AEW. So he originally signed a contract in June 2021. And everyone was told it was a three-year deal, which would mean that he had six months left on it, you know, after tonight. Also, he was out with injury and suspension for multiple months. So you would think time got tacked on for that as well. Well, what we were told is there was some type of quirk or something odd in his contract that allowed him to get out of it. And he informed AEW at some point between Dynamite and World's End that he would not be staying and that this would be his last match in the company. And apparently they had no other recourse to get him to stay. And as you saw, Triple H had teased on Twitter that a former WWE champion could be attending day one on Monday, the first show of 2024. Now, I wanna state separately, I don't like when WWE advertises something as a former WWE champion and it's like a US champion or a tag team champion or whatever. It's a former champion in WWE or a former WWE champion. Those are two totally different things. So the expectation is that he may actually show up in WWE as soon as Monday on Raw, which would be basically like a 48-hour turnaround from someone going from AEW to WWE, which obviously is wild. And the last time I think something like that even came close to happening was, I believe, Malachi Black, who had a weird contract escape clause uh, with WWE, or not, it wasn't an escape clause. They fired him. But instead of having like the 90-day release, he only had 15 days or 30 days or something like that. And he quickly showed up on AEW. But we're talking about a 48-hour turnaround. So I think Andrade was losing anyway, but that has made it an undoubtable decision for him, obviously, to lose this match. And if he does show up on Raw Monday night or in WWE, let's say, by Royal Rumble, that's going to be a real interesting conversation to have. Sort of. Um, I don't care for Andrade. Uh, again, he doesn't do much of anything for me. Um, he's a great wrestler, but there's a lot of good wrestlers. And just he's never really stood out to me. He had some really good stuff in NXT, the Gargano match and all that. Mm-hmm. Everything he's done in AEW has been a complete disaster from the very beginning when he came in with Vicky Guerrero. Oh, God. So, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot yeah. about that. That was a freaking disaster. So... If he if he comes back to WWE, okay, I won't, I won't, whatever. All right, cool. yeah, he'll be there, I guess. I think, and, that, and, Char- Char- and Charlotte won't be because Charlotte's now out for nine months. So. I, I think that's generally a fair take. Like for anyone who said, you know, Vince McMahon dropped the ball on Andrade, and now Tony Khan dropped the ball on Andrade. Yeah, probably both of them to a degree. I think that's fair. There's Andrade, a, there's a common denominator yeah, there. there's a common denominator there, and that common denominator is Andrade who doesn't seem to be the easiest guy to work with. Now, there is something to be said for like going to AEW and coming back to WWE and maybe seeing the grass isn't always greener on the other side, especially with Paul Levesque now holding the book. Uh, I think Cody's obviously benefited from it. Certainly CM Punk seems to be real freaking happy to be back. And maybe the same will be with Andrade and maybe they will do something with him. This is what I'll say briefly about it. There's always space for extremely talented upper mid carters. And that's what Andrade is. Don't think he's ever going to be a world champion. If he does, it would just be some miracle turnaround of a career, but the guy can go in the ring. He's actually improved 
since he's been in AEW in terms of in the ring. And sure, maybe some of that was like WWE limiting him to a degree, but the fact that he's been able to go back to Mexico and wrestle, um, I think has really like re-energized him. And I think that plus Triple H holding the book, if he does return to WWE, would make for a real interesting combination. And I'd, I'd be extremely interested to see him back. But to your point, is he a huge signing? Is it CM Punk or Cody or Jade Cargill? No. But is it interesting that he would potentially show up 48 hours after his last AEW match? abso freaking lootly it would be. Well, while we were talking, uh, Tony Khan said during the during the media scrum press conference that uh, that he that Andrade's contract ends at the end of the year. The end of the year is December 31st. January 1st is day one. So we'll see. Literally right now as we are uh, having this conversation. So there you go. All right. Let's go ahead and move on to the all star eight man tag, as it was termed. Brian Danielson, Claudio Castagnoli, Daniel Garcia and Mark Briscoe. Where I guess technically the babyface side against Jay White, Roosh, Brody King, and Jay Lethal. So this was added, I believe, after Dynamite as a match featuring all Continental Classic losers who did not otherwise have matches on the show. This was very much a New Japan-style booking. Nothing wrong with that. Garcia was going to dance on the ramp until Brian's music interrupted him. Garcia's nose got bloodied early. Briscoe hit a great running neckbreaker off the apron. Not sure about you. My feed cut out here for a few minutes. I missed completely what happened in the match. We got a finisher spam across the board in a good way with Claudio's pop-up European uppercut on white being the most impressive of all of those. Then Garcia avoided lethal injection, catching lethal in the jackknife cover for the win. Garcia and Briscoe danced after the bell. King blindsided daddy magic on commentary, but we didn't see it. And Garcia looked over there and either didn't notice or didn't care. And then Garcia had like a stare down with Danielson, but they were across the ring from each other basically when that happened, so nothing actually went down between them. The Danielson-Garcia storytelling was the by far for me the most compelling part of it. Solid wrestling across the board, obviously. The finish was very WWE-esque, the way it was executed, but I liked Garcia getting the win and continuing his story because he needed it more than anyone else in the match. 3.5 stars B, if you're slightly higher, I accept that as well. Yeah, my first thought was, Wait, this seems like a random collection of people together. I had apparently missed uh, at the time that uh, that that's that it was all the Continental Classic people. Mm -hmm. So that that was fine. Um, my feed cut out too, but not that long. I just X'd out and came back in, and it was fine. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, but apparently it was down for a bit longer for for everybody else. Um, it was fine. It was. We'll talk about the next one, but it was extremely weird to do two eight man tag matches <laughs> on this card. Yeah. And this one went 1750, according to Wikipedia, to open the show with no real story behind it. Ultimately, though, Daniel Garcia gets the win. That's what mattered. I think you picked him to win the Battle Royal because we didn't know who was going to be. Yeah, it. I didn't know. So, yeah. so but you still come out on with Daniel Garcia gets something coming out of the show. And he did. Yep. So that was good. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it made sense. I'm going to give myself credit for that pick, even though, yeah, it wasn't the same match, but <laughs> but who would have known and at the time? So, uh, no, it was solid. It was solid across the board. And a good start to the show. It was the right opener, I think is probably the best way to put it. But after it opened, everything else went downhill until the final three matches. And that was a huge problem, the way it was laid out. Uh, Chris Jericho is one of those matches. Sammy Guevara, Darby Allen, and Sting fought Ricky Starks, Big Bill, Powerhouse Hobbs, and originally Kyle Fletcher, but less than 24 hours after the match was announced, they replaced Fletcher with Konosuke Takeshka, which we said on the Ultimate Preview podcast is what they needed to do because people want to see Takeshka and no one really gives a shit about Kyle Fletcher. 
On Rampage, Jericho did another poor Freddie Mercury impersonation before giving a very loose explanation why Darby and Sting had his back. Then Sammy came out. They apologized to one another with Jericho saying he's always going to believe in him and wants him to partner for the tag team title opportunity. Guevara obviously agreed. It was kind of convoluted, but at least they did something to try to explain, you know, the move with Guevara, that his change of heart and Darby and Sting being with them. Again, didn't really like work, but they tried and it's better than not trying at all. In terms of the match, there were a couple Jericho signs in the crowd where if you know the rumors that have been going around this weekend, they were notable. Now, here on the show, we're not going to discuss the Jericho situation at the moment, basically because of the way the accusation was levied. It was just thrown out and done on a podcast without anything to back it up, completely unprofessional. Plus, there's a lack of concrete, verifiable information to go on. So if you want, you can Google it. You can read up on it yourself. We're informing you there is something out there. Maybe by the time we do our next AEW show in the new year, which will be this coming Thursday, maybe we'll have something to say. And if so, we will say it. Uh, But as of right now, neither Chris nor I feel it's appropriate to address it at this time. Going into the match, uh, Takeshka hit a great avalanche blue thunderbomb. Jericho did stereo stinger splashes with Sting. Bill completely no-sold a code breaker. Tagging was, I mean, non-existent. Jericho took a huge slam from Hobbs. Darby nearly broke his neck on a suplex, then ate a double German with Sammy and Takeshka. Stark speared Guevara, but Sammy countered Rochambeau into GTH and hit a shooting star press for the clean one, two, three. I'm 95% sure there were CM Punk chants at the end of this match as it happened. Mm -hmm. And pinning Starks was certainly a choice. I mean, I guess the idea was you want to give Sammy a big win upon his return. Fine. You want to make sure Jericho and him are number one contenders. Fine. Yeah. You don't want Hobbs or Takeshka to take the fall because you have Hobbs over Jericho and Takeshka over Omega twice. Fine. But she's had big bill in the match. He could have taken it. Starks went from main event in collision and putting on bangers with Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson to losing an eight man tag team match on this show. Look, Sting, on top of this, he had a good run in AEW, like way beyond any expectation I possibly would have had. But each match of his has been rougher and rougher over the last few months. Jericho struggled here as well, like Undertaker end of career struggled. He also got some NDA chance, which plays into what we were talking about before. It just wasn't good. Even though there were a couple fun spots, it, it really wasn't good. 1.75 stars D+. I would have much rather us gotten... FTR and House of Black, which is something they've actually been building on television on the show. It would have torn the house down instead of this. I don't get that decision at all. That That is the thing that stands out about this entire AW card. You could always count on a tag team match or a trios match that they just freaking go all out. And like it's like the one thing you could count on for an AW show. This didn't have that like at all. Instead, you had these two eight-man tag matches, which were just, both of them were just kind of weird. Um, Starks getting pinned. Commentary immediately pointed out, oh, they pinned the tag team champions. That's going to, so like, clearly it was to set up Mm -hmm. them as the number one contenders. But man, it was hard to get into this match because the crowd was just very focused on the Jericho stuff. That's why he was getting booed on his entrance and booed every time he came into the match. And so like, you've got these spots where, Sammy and and Jericho are doing their things and it's like the spot where the fans are supposed to cheer, but then they're booing. And so it's like, it was really just, you couldn't get into it. 
And then you've got freaking Darby taking months off his career, doing these. A lot of these guys took some really big bumps in a match that absolutely did not need them. Appreciate the effort. I thought tossing, I thought Darby getting tossed to the other side of the ring was pretty hilarious. Um, but yeah, this was this was this was nothing. Um, there was not much to it. You know, it was what it was. One other thing I noted, mm-hmm. um, the Callis family, when they entered, it's kind of a general, again, production thing. Like, there was no sense that this was a real faction that was together because Hobbs is halfway down the ramp. Callis is like, Takeshka is up on the stage, taking off a mask slowly. Callis is in between them. Camera guy has no idea where he's supposed to be because they're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. come out as a come out as a team, man. Like, really, it's just like a little thing there that makes it, it would make them feel like a team, a faction. If you're supposed to do this, you do these things together. Like we always talk about, tag team wrestlers should not come out with separate music. You know, they they right. they got to come out together. You should have a name if you can. Like these things matter, and I, I think the the Callis family just feels like a random collection of dudes who are not connected. And the entrance just stuck out to me that I wrote it down. Yeah, that's fine. Let's move to the TBS championship, Julia Hart against Abaddon. We learned during ring announcements that this is a house rules match with biting being the rule that was allowed. A stipulation added at the last second when we didn't even know the rules were being applied here at all just does not work. They actually have been telling this story on TV. And yet we didn't get any of this leading into it. It didn't make any sense. There was a fun, I'll give the crowd credit. The crowd was not good, by the way, This uh, on this evening. Uh, Nassau no. Coliseum, Long Island, very poor crowd. But they did a very fun, this is spooky chant two times during this match. It was also the loudest I remember them being before the co-main event. Julia hit a crucifix bomb. Abaddon eventually bit her arm twice and went on a run. Then she bit Julia in the face only for Sky Blue to run in, knock her off the top rope and slide under the ring. Abaddon no-sold the bump, pulled her out, and leveled her. Julia caught her from behind and then completely missed a moonsault landing on her feet, crouched over Abaddon, and they went with that as the finish. One, two, three, match is over. Woof. So this started well, and I was like, okay, this is hitting a little bit. I'm down for this. And then it Mm -hmm. completely fell apart. I'm going to say two stars and C minus just because a lot of the character work was really strong here and they had a decent match story. But what didn't make a shred of sense is they just did a tag team match with Thunder Rosa getting Abaddon's back. So she got her back. Then they had a tag team match. And then Thunder Rosa doesn't get her back here in the same situation with the same people. Why didn't she show up? Julia and Abaddon are both better than what they did here. I'm not sure why it wasn't better. I'm also not sure why it went 12 minutes. This is a yeah. six, seven, eight minute match. It's all you need. Two, like I said, two stars, C minus. If you're lower, I totally accept it being lower than that. A lot of matches on this card should have gone several minutes shorter than they were. That said, I think Abaddon's kind of cool. And I kind of think she is the kind of wrestler who might fit in WWE better. Mm, I don't know about because that. Because you could just, just because like she's all in on character, you know, like that's the whole thing. And 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 um, I don't know. I just I thought about it when when I saw her. Uh, Julie Hart, I thought was, you know, decent here. You know, she's still young, hasn't wrestled all that much. She hasn't defended this very much. Kind of, you know, again, put in a singles match on a pay-per-view. You know, they're really 
putting her out there to see how she can hang. And I thought she hung pretty well. They're just, it was too long and there just wasn't enough to get into for obvious reasons. There wasn't much of a story. It's also weird when Julia Hart's thing is being kind of, you know, emo and spooky. And then mm. you've got freaking Abaddon coming in. Like yeah. It kind of takes away the whole spookiness of Julia Hart. So uh, that you don't want to put spooky and spooky together when one is a lot more spooky than the other. So, uh, yeah, not great. Um, was what it was. My question is, we've gone three years only seeing Abaddon on Halloween. We finally see her Christmas, New Year's time because of the feud with yeah. Julia. I'm wondering if we see her again until Halloween 2024. Maybe we will find, right. find out. Uh, I, like, I, again, like, I know they've done a lot of pay-per-views, but really, Rio and Abaddon are your two yeah. women who are wrestling for titles on your pay-per-view? Like, yeah. come on. Man. And look, and look, people are hurt, though. Like, Jamie Hayter, hurt. Britt Baker, yes. hurt. Yes. Uh, Serena Deeb just coming back. Thunder Rosa just came back. So, like, fair. You know, I, I understand that they're not at their full complement of talent, but they also had, like, Chris Statlander and, and Willow Nightingale on the show in a throwaway mm-hmm. match that was built up at the last minute. Stat could have challenged Tony Storm. They could have built a whole storyline around that. They didn't. She's way better. Uh, you know, Willow could have actually had her match against Julia on this show instead of Abaddon. They wanted to go spooky. I'm okay with that. But you got to use your division. Hopefully, when these reinforcements come, Serena Deeb uh, and, and Jamie Hayter, hopefully sooner than later, now Thunder Rose is back. That'll help. And maybe Britt Baker can get back soon. That would be cool as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. For those to be the challengers, it tells you really all you need to know. Let's go to the FTW championship match. Hook against Wheeler Yuta. Contested under FTW rules. Changed the last minute on zero hour. Uh, so Yuta beat Matt Seidel in an ROH pure match on Rampage. That happened for no storyline reason whatsoever. Danhausen came out after, again, for no reason. Took a DDT with Hook ultimately making the save. I'm trying to figure out who Danhausen is for because I- I'm starting to not understand him even more than I already didn't. Anyway, this match, Hook hit a high angle suplex into a trash can. Yuta took a hard way, I think, and hit a DDT on a stop sign. Hook grabbed a rigged hockey stick that broke the second that he like wielded it, which really was a harbinger for the entire show. Then he used yeah. the remaining part of the stick for red rum and the submission win. Parts of this were strong. Parts of it weren't. It only went 10 minutes. In totality, it really didn't hit. 2.75 stars, C+. Yeah, it was fine. Like, th- this is a fine pre-show match. You know, there's not much to it. Just have some guys do some fun stuff, and that's what it was. Again, I... FTW uh, championship should always always be under FTW rules. That's the whole point. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad they got there. Uh, but, you know, it's low card stuff. Uh, Chris Statlander fought Willow Nightingale on zero hour. This got made on Rampage with Willow wanting to team up because they're both from Long Island. Stokely Hathaway then came up with the idea, hey, you guys should fight each other as he continued to wedge drive some more. So they did. Stat did three amigos, got under Willow for an inverted electric chair and hit a scissor kick. Willow hit a powerbomb on the apron and a missile dropkick. Then they countered finishes and botched consecutive strikes. Stat then missed a 450. Willow twice botched her finisher, got a false finish, and then hit Dr. Bomb, I think, for the win. Stoke was on commentary throughout, and he was disappointed Stat lost. Willow hugged Stat after the bell, and that was it. So this started well enough. It started, and the majority of it was the best women's match of the entire night. But it completely fell apart in the finish, almost as if both of them, but especially Willow, just completely ran out of juice. I'm at 2.5 stars in a C. You know, maybe it was a little bit better than that, but there was so much botching in the finish that it just took me out of it. 
the only the only thing that jumped out uh other than that was um uh on commentary uh stokely said he hadn't been this upset since martin was canceled that popped me yeah he's really funny i mean just in general so that was good he's great yeah and then lastly serena deeb i mentioned her a minute ago she got a video package in which she broke out of a straitjacket and began wrestling training saying she's been studying the women's roster and the professor is ready to return it was actually quite well done i'm glad she's coming back and i just kind of wanted to mention that before we get out of here so that is aew world's end let's wrap it up with our grades before we get to the post-show final grades we're going to give you a reminder about the pre-show expectation grade. So in our ultimate preview, the Silver King chimed in thinking this show would be a B plus. I posted a poll for our listeners and these were the results that came in before the show. 13% A, 60% B, 16% C, 11% D, F that averaged out to an 83 out of 100, an extremely low B. So no one clearly was as optimistic as I was entering the show, but I will point out my grade came before there were changes and additions and all this other stuff to the card. The Battle Royal wasn't announced. Granted, the eight-man All-Star wasn't announced. Keith Lee was still on the card. So if I had known everything, I probably would have been at a B. But nevertheless, I was B+. The listeners were a B. Chris, let's go ahead, wrap this up with our post-show grades. As always, when we do that, I let you go first. And I'm extremely curious how you're going to start this off because we have results from the poll that are interesting and my grade I think is gonna be interesting as well. And you and I usually are right on the same page. So let's find out what is your final grade for AEW World's End? My pre-show grade coming in, which I wasn't able to give on the pod was a B minus. My, my, my thought coming out is C plus. This was rough. And there were only two things that I truly enjoyed. That was Christian and Edge, the back and forth, and the Eddie Kingston and Moxley. Samoa Joe MJF was fine. So it's like two and a half things. The rest of it. And the opening match was, was fine, too. The eight man. The. Eh, Not eh, as eh, good eh. as as MJF and, and Joe, but I'm just saying it was, I didn't. It was fine. I just it was fine. I All right, go ahead. It's your opinion. My, my uh, fault. Go ahead. So yeah, I just you know it was just a thrown together eight man tag team match. There was so much on this card with no story whatsoever. Like this is a pay per view, man, including title shots. It's just like, and then none of the wrestling stuck out except for a couple things here and there. Like you you know again, AW you could count on. Hey, why are there like two or three tag team matches on this card? Oh, they all freaking, you know, were bangers, you know, like ladder matches and Young Bucks and Lucha Brothers. It's just FTR. You could point out there's good stuff on the card. It was just none of that here, except for a couple of things at the end of the show. This was AEW's worst pay-per-view um, that they've done. A rare miss because they're usually, even when we don't have high expectations going in, they're usually at least good wrestling you know there's something there was very very little out of this and then the again the big moments the mjf title loss the devil reveal the cj perry turn they just didn't hit especially the first one the mjf stuff that they that the way that they needed to hit so it's not like it came out of the saying hey at least they had some moments they had consequential things it was just so just so not exciting yeah, I'm, I'm actually relatively surprised you're as high as you are. 
to be honest. What do you want to hear next? You want mine or do you want the listeners? Great. Uh, listeners. So the listeners chimed in. They had two hours to vote and we got 417 votes on this poll. So it is representative as a sample. No question. Uh, 7.7% A, 23.5% B, 36% C, 32.9% D, F, which is a record in podcast history in terms of us doing these polls and how people responded to them. So that averages out to a 75 out of 100, which is a flat C. And for me, that is exactly correct. So you pointed out that there were two matches that truly delivered for you. I completely agree. They're the exact same two matches that I had. Eddie Kingston, John Moxley, and Adam Copeland, Christian Cage. But let's remember, I despised the booking of the post-match there, right? Mm -hmm. So that takes it down a little bit for me. But the other thing we need to point out is let's make believe that was one match. There were 12 matches on this card. So if two of 12 were worthwhile, and I can tell you right now, there's probably only one match from this show I'll ever watch again. And if I do, it would be Mox and, and Eddie. So you're telling me on this whole show that I paid $50 for, that is your year-end wrap-up, that is supposed to have this huge reveal, and MJF loses his damn title, and Adam Copeland wins a freaking title, and I'm coming out of it with some of the lowest grades I've ever given any AEW matches. I mean, Chris, you said this is the worst pay-per-view AEW has done. That's undoubted. In the last three years, at least, since they've become full-time and gone full-time with their pay-per-views, this is the worst one, full stop, particularly when it comes to in-ring, because just like you said, they have set such a high bar in that regard, where even if you don't like the booking, even if you think the winners are wrong, there's bad storytelling, the main event doesn't deliver, whatever the case, you can point out and say, hey, there was those A matches and, the, and this great tag team match that over-delivered, and oh man, that women's match was fun. I don't have anything to hang my hat on here. I liked Eddie and Mox because we knew it was coming. We knew how it was going to finish. It wasn't even that surprising. There was nothing on the show that shocked me. There was nothing on the show that took it to any level other than this could have been done on collision, right? I, I think what needs to be said here is that Tony Khan did a great job, and I truly believe this, with the Continental Classic. It is probably my favorite thing that AEW has done in a long time. But it's clear that it took up so much TV time and so much of his creative juices that nothing was left over for an entire pay-per-view card. As mentioned, the women's title match had no build. There were two random eight-mans, a convoluted women's match, title match, and the Swerve Keith Lee match didn't happen. The feud restarted out of nowhere, and we didn't even get the match to, to pay it off. Yeah. You had Samoa Joe win in, in down fashion, again, not on a crescendo, right? You had the post-match with, with Copeland and, and Christian. So what am I hanging my hat on here? I can't. I, I got to tell you, we've been talking about this since the start of the fall when they did all in and all out on back-to-back -back weekends. They ran Wrestle Dream like two weeks after that. AEW has asked for a lot of our money over the last four to five months. This is probably the first time that I've purchased an AEW pay-per-view and legitimately regretted it. I thought this was a waste of $50 on this night. And we're doing a podcast where we have to cover this. And I'm still saying that. So I actually think giving this a C is kind of generous 
because the expectation is so high for AEW. And this fell so freaking far below it. So this was a massive disappointment for me. Um, again, even though we contextualized for you the devil situation and Joe winning the title and MJF being injured and some of the other things that happened, just because things are sensible doesn't mean they're high quality. I'm at a C and I am legitimately a little bit surprised that you're higher than that. One thing I also liked about the show, uh, the stage, I thought it was a, a good setup. Yeah. Um, look, look, Tony Khan is running AW at the same time that the Jaguars are have been in their season and Fulham is in their season. Like, can you imagine Vince McMahon having two other completely full time jobs outside of WWE while he was running WWE? Like, it's insane. Yep. I, like, I, I don't. I don't, it's not reasonable for anybody to think that. And you throw that on top of all the injuries that AEW is dealing with. And this is a 20 for a year that everybody thought would be a gigantic year. turned out to be a disastrous year for AEW, I think 2023. And they're going into 2024 limping in a big way. Absolutely. And now the guy who has been carrying your company, MJF may or may not be out for a bit too. So like, it's a big kind of gut check time here. Not not that they're going away or anything. They're okay. But it's been rough for a bit. And this is a rough way to go out on a card that was built terribly and didn't didn't over deliver in any any way. Yeah, I would say built terribly and executed worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate to end the year on a downer, folks, because it's been a hell of a year in professional wrestling. And I'm pretty sure 2024 is going to kick off in a significantly positive way as well. But that's what happened here, right? And there's going to be fallout from the show. Um, Conversations about Chris Jericho and Andrade Alidolo and others. And we will hit those next week. We have our WWE episode coming on Tuesday, our next AEW and NXT episode coming on Thursday. I would be remiss if I did not let everyone know that the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka the Medes, will begin voting on New Year's Eve. That's right. Sunday, while you're watching week 17 of the NFL, keep your eyes peeled for our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. We are going to drop the ballot for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Medes. And voting will be contained within probably a 72-hour period. So you're going to want to jump on that and contribute because we are going to have a hell of an award show coming for your ear holes on Monday, January 9th. You are not going to want to miss that. Let me hit you up with a couple reminders on our schedule. Already in our podcast archive, our not penultimate, I guess third to last episode of the year, our 2023 year in review has been doing gangbusters from listeners and downloads already. If you have missed it, you don't want to miss it. It is a three-hour recap of the year in wrestling for 2023. We put a ton of effort into it. The response has been fantastic. Make sure you do not miss that episode. Another episode you might have missed, last Friday, we taped our final WWE episode of the year where we broke down everything that happened on that SmackDown. So make sure you listen to that. As mentioned, Coming up next week on Tuesday, your next WWE episode, we will recap everything that happens at day one. We will mention some of these major 
WWE headlines, and we will talk about so much more. Don't miss that. And then next Thursday, we will cover AEW and NXT. So we got a lot already in the books and a lot coming up here on Getting Over. One other reminder, major reminder, I want to let you know about. Getting Over has been nominated as Best Wrestling Podcast for 2023, thanks to the Sports Podcast Awards. We have pinned a link in our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast, where you can vote for us. It is a fan award fully based on email addresses. So I think you know what that means. Please be sure to vote for us as soon as you can and potentially as many times as you can. Again, you can find the link at the top of our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. On the way out, as we wrap up this final episode of 2023, allow the Silver King to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You leave a written review on Apple, we will read it live right here on the show. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for all the episode drops, news analysis, highlights. You can DM and tweet us comments and questions. And of course, you can vote in those polls and similar polls that we mentioned on today's show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you get exclusive news posts, exclusive audio, and much more. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Chris, it is New Year's Eve day, I guess, technically. We have the college football playoff semifinals coming up. We have WWE day one. It is going to be a hell of a start to 2024. I appreciate you joining us once again for an entire year of professional wrestling performance enhancing audio right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Is there anything else you want to say on the way out as we wrap up 2023? Uh, Vote for us for the Sports uh, Podcast Awards for Best Wrestling Podcast again. uh, That's been really cool to be nominated and we'd love to win it. And It's based on fan mode, so go do that if you haven't. And you can remember right here on Getting Over, we're all about And we'll give you as much of that as we possibly can in 2024. Thank you all for listening to tonight's show. Thank you once again to Vintage Chris Manini for joining your boy, the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. For Vintage, this is the Silver King signing off, leaving you and leaving 2023 with just three final words. Bye for now.